We all have incredible relationships to what we eat, to what we don't eat, to what we've eaten since childhood and what we were fed, to what food means to us. And so I find it a really powerful tool in storytelling and in opening people's hearts and their minds. Samin Nosrat, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Welcome to Her Own Words, a Dear Damsels podcast. We're Abby and Bridie, the team behind Dear Damsels, and this podcast is part of our overall mission to provide a platform for women's voices, which is what we've been doing online and in print for the past five years, if you can believe it. We want to share the stories of women in their own words. This is a very special episode of the podcast, as it is dedicated entirely to food and writing about food. That's because this month, which is February, we're publishing our second paperback, which is What She's Having. It's a collection of stories of women and food. You may remember that in June of last year, we held a six-week open submission period for pieces of creative writing by women on the subject of food. Since then, we've been working with 16 brilliant writers to bring this beautiful collection to life. And on the 25th of February, you'll finally be able to get your hands on the copy. What she's having is a collection that delves into food in all its forms and celebrates each and every mouthful. We hope this podcast episode will do the same. And we did try and put it on the right path by opening with a beautiful quote related to this topic by Samin Nosrat. What made you pick this quote, Ab? Well, this is a quote we shared on our Instagram a little while ago. And I think it just does a really good job of summing up all of the reasons why we wanted to make a collection of writing about food I think it is a really great explanation of why food writing is a thing and why it's um, so popular. Lots of people might see food writing as being perhaps a bit um, inaccessible or not really for them, a bit guardian. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) Samin does a really good job of putting it really simply. Food is what brings us together. It's about your childhood. It kind of is part of your memories. It's what you like eating but it's also what you don't like eating like it doesn't have to be this reverence for food just the way she puts it is so simple we put together a little editor's letter at the beginning of what she's having and um we probably echoed a lot of what Samin (laughs) sums up in a much more concise way something we mentioned there is how food is both something we everyone has in common Bri you you put it really nicely about how you know it's we've all got like the dishes to wash up at the end of the day it's like a very mundane thing but um it's also really personal, like what you choose to feed yourself and it's what we choose to eat. It's really personal as well as being something that we all have in common. Yeah, and I think especially that quote, she really, as I mean, if Samina was right, it's one of my favourite food writers and also her programme with the same title as her book, Salt, Acid, Fat, Heat, is really good at that way of making food feel really accessible and sort of taking down the barriers of things that you thought maybe, you know, like butchery or making homemade pasta and things like that stuff that you thought was out of your reach. But she makes it seem accessible because of the storytelling. Like she make, you meet the people whose jobs it is to do this, who like you meet the cows who later become like the food, like all that sort of thing. She's really good at bringing it to a really communal platform for people. And I think that's what we want to do with this book in like, maybe not as an intense way as her Netflix show does, but in the way that we wanted to make sure that we were bringing personal experiences to a communal audience and touching on lots of different points about why food is so important to us, but also not eradicating the individual part of it, which is like, you know, what you like, what you don't like, why you don't like that, why you do like that, all that sort of thing. So yes, beautiful quote from Samin. And excitingly, we are recording this on a Saturday and yesterday friday finished copies came in i want to wave them at the camera because we're recording this on i thought you had to do that i was like abby do you remember on tv (laughs) like like, let me just hit oh i could maybe do like a sound can you hear 
That was ASMR. That was very good. I enjoyed that. That is our very thick What She's Having, which is bigger than Let Me Know In Your Home, which is our first paperback collection, which we also still love, obviously. We have a great photograph of both of them together, which you'll probably see on Instagram. Maybe when this comes out, maybe it's already there. Um, I thought that was a good question, Abs, actually, while we're talking about food. What was the best meal you had this week? Let's really get in the mood. Let's really set the tone. And we're going to talk about food. Let's start right now. What is the best thing that you ate this week? I have not been doing the most cooking at the moment for reasons of lockdown, mundanity, driving me a bit mad. I did make, right at the start of the week, a beetroot and goat's cheese risotto, which is from Rukmini, Ayers, Roastington. Yeah, so it's one of those risottos that you can put in the oven, which actually blows my mind because I love risotto, but the stirring does get a bit. Sometimes it's nice if you're having a glass of wine, you're doing whatever you're doing, but sometimes the stirring gets a bit much. So the fact you can put a risotto, you can just put everything in the water and everything, and then just put it in the oven and it comes out ready made risotto is the reason it's like that's one of my favorite recipes. So I made that at the start of the week and I have cooked nothing since. I mean, I think that's a strong starter. Like speaking of tin lads, like I was also taking part in Cook Jan, which is an initiative organized by Alice Slater, who is an author in what she's having which is sort of combating like January diet culture and all that language around that and all the like weight loss ads by creating a safe space for you to talk about food and share meals that you've made and like get back in the kitchen after like a December of eating just quality street and sausage rolls if you're me but I've been really partaking on that on Twitter January ended at the end of last week just to remind everyone of calendars and I wanted to do something quite big to mark the end of cook jam so I roasted a pork shoulder and I've never done that before. That was a first for me. Don't usually get involved in meat. I usually let someone else do it. So that was really fun. And I've just been eating that in various forms for like half of the week. And I feel very proud of myself. Nice. We wanted to create what she's having because as we mentioned in our original submission letter, food is about so much more than just the first bite. It can connect us to our culture. It defines our routines and it flavors our fondest memories. We've received and published some really brilliant writing about food in the past on Dear Damsels. This collection is an extension of the considered and thoughtful stories about food that we've shared in the past. What she's having is structured into five parts. In the kitchen, store cupboard, meals for one, split the bill and taste buds. So these are themes that we tried to sort of group the writing together and they weren't set in our mind when we first approached the collection but they ended up being shaped around the submissions that we received and we started to understand the stories that were being told and how they could complement one another. So we wanted to explore those five themes and ideas on this podcast and feature some of the writers that you'll be reading in the collection. Give you a taster, if you will, of the What She's Having experience. I love that. You did that very well. <laughs> the book opens with In the Kitchen, Feeding Yourself and Finding Your Appetite. We chose this theme because we knew we needed to have something that was centred in the kitchen the act of cooking and the actual process of making food. Routines, preparing a meal, of getting your hands dirty or like getting your favourite ingredient and how it can change the rest of your life, how it's something you use in every single thing. So it's quite a big thing, but it's definitely focused in the kitchen where I have been spending a lot of my time. And in many houses, it is like the hub of the home. One of the pieces included in this chapter is Starter by Hannah Lawrence. It's a story that discusses a friendship that has deteriorated despite the close proximity of sharing a flat together. And it's done through a very clever metaphor of a sourdough starter and a tiny kitchen. You explore the narrator uncovering parts of herself through this relationship, vulnerabilities that she hasn't seen before, and cracks in the friendship that she can't quite fix alongside a starter that is 
very problematic and difficult to manage. We also now have a sourdough starter. I can confirm they are temperamental beasts. I don't know if you ever did that, Abby, if you went and made sourdough at any point during your lockdown experience. Do you know, I haven't. And I'm disappointed. I was hoping that my boyfriend might take it on and that we might have weekly sourdough, but not so far. But I, yeah, I really loved Starter by Hannah Lawrence, particularly the way you see the dough breathing and taking up more space as you hear about the space that the two women, the two flatmates are existing in and the kind of space between them that is shrinking as this sourdough takes up more space. And they also sort of both get involved in it in different levels. And it was like, it becomes a focus of their very small kitchen and their very repetitive routine. I think it's just really clever writing. And it really stood out to us in the way that these two narratives, the one of the narrator and the sourdough and the one of the narrator and the flatmate really complement each other in a very clever way. So here's a clip of Hannah reading from Starter. I look up from the blender. I can see her lips moving, but I can't tell what she's saying over the sound. When it becomes clear, it's more than a passing comment I can get away with ignoring. I pause it for a second. Say that again? Why has sourdough even become such a big thing? It's not even that good. You don't like it? I ask, wearied by a day of her being constantly contrary. Like, it's okay, but it's not worth the price. Have you seen how much they used to charge down at the food market? It's like £4 a loaf. So ridiculous. She's wearing a pair of slipper socks and twisting on the balls of her feet as she talks. Both feet sliding together, first left, then right. It's something she's done since we were children. I guess that's why everyone's making it themselves, I reply, turning the blender back on before she has time to respond. I keep it going until she's left the room and I can be sure the conversation is officially over, turning what was meant to be breadcrumbs into dust in the process. I guess once we finish that last loaf from the freezer, we could try out the starter, I say spreading reduced price margarine across a thin slice of defrosted granary, the sliced sunflower seeds nestled in the dough, gazing up at me as the knife passes over them. There's something about the way the sweetness of the synthetic yellow margarine mingles with the tuna mayonnaise that reminds me of childhood. Cheap tuna and cucumber sandwiches handed over the back of the car seat during long journeys. Tuna and sweet corn on a white bap from a seaside sandwich shop during a school trip. A tuna salad on brown, no red onions please, from the canteen at dad's work when he'd take me in for the day during the summer holidays. The more mayo, the better. Though there are the Heston Blumenthal's of the world pouring over their oat cuisine, I suspect it's all a ruse. To me, food just doesn't get better than a tuna sandwich on cheap sliced bread with some worryingly yellow margarine. The second chapter or part or section of what she's having is titled Store Cupboard. The pieces in this section are really about the food that made you. So it's all about memories and the nostalgia that you have for food, the traditions that kind of make up the foundations of your relationship with food, the the recipes you've got in your back pocket sort of thing. And one of the pieces that is part of this section is called Eating by Hand by Sayida Salma. This piece is really about the joy of, as it says in the title, eating with your hands. For Saida, it's a tradition that really feels familiar to her and her Bengali family. It's something that is central to the way they eat every day and how they eat when they come together as a family too. She uses the idea of eating by your hand as a really great framework in this personal essay for exploring the 
uncomfortable reactions and negative reactions that she's encountered in different parts of her life, whether that's work or um, eating at restaurants, for example, and how she would prefer to eat, like how she'd feel most comfortable eating. And there's this great section where Saida so cleverly points out how we all eat with our hands in Western culture, despite these criticisms she's come across before. You know, peeling fruit and eating greasy McDonald's chips in your car. She just shows how food is best enjoyed when the touch and the feel of it is part of it. It just makes so much sense. And it was a really standout personal essay for us. Yeah, I think when we read personal essays, we talk a lot about having an entry point. Now, obviously, personal essays are sharing a personal experience. That's the nature of it. But it's really important for you to engage with your reader and give them an entry point into your worldview. And like Cedar so does this perfectly, like something really tactile that we all have experienced, a way of using our hands to like give ourselves pleasure, to give ourselves nourishment, the traditions of that and applying it to her own home life, it's done really, really well. And we both were very affected by this and thought about what we think about eating by hand in a different way. I think it was definitely a piece that caused a lot of discussions between me and Abby. And we've got a clip of Saida reading from her essay, Eating by Hand. Perhaps you have noticed us before, those of us with tandoori stained fingers, or with a faint ochre stain left over from our mother's fried fish with onion masala and especially those who have dipped into red chilli sauces and pickles to adorn our dishes with. On the outside, growing up at school, we were mocked for our curry fingers, but on the inside, amongst our community, we knew that it was all worth it. There is nothing better than the joy that comes with eating by hand. Some of my fondest memories of my stern, disapproving mother are of when we have all gathered on the sitting room floor together by the sofa, Amma has come from the kitchen with a steaming plate of chicken curry with potatoes and we are silent with expectation. She artfully folds over hot, delicate pearls of rice with the curry and expertly tears off chunks of chicken. She does all of this with the tips of her elegant and precise fingers, scoops it up deftly and we await like chicks on a branch for a golden mouthful to be placed on our tongues. This is normal. This is what happens growing up all the time. Ask any Bengali person and they will smile nostalgically. For a brief moment, a family of seven in a crowded two-bedroom flat with peeling wallpaper was able to take a break from their chaotic lives and be joined together. Much later, even as grown women, my cousins and I would love being babied by our youngest aunt, who was only a few years older than me, in her 30s. She was still waiting to get pregnant and she adored us. We would squeal whilst perched on the edge of the sofa bed and claim that she had given the best part of the lamb to the other. Or, no, 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 this mouthful was too big colour. I'm going to get so fat. And someone would be taking selfies the whole time. Now she has two wonderful babies of her own. But if she were to offer me another mouthful, I would jump at the chance, even at the age of 33. We all eat with our hands. If you truly love food, you will find it hard to deny the joy of gnawing away at the corner of a lamb chop or descending into a bag of salt and vinegar crisps, of scoffing down a handful of McDonald's fries while striving, of peeling a fragrant satsuma, or holding a perfectly buttered crumpet to your lips, or gently tearing meat away from the bone of smoked ribs. In those moments where we use our hands, those gifts from the gods, we are joined in our appreciation of texture, fullness, and anticipation. 
talking about personal essays and personal experience, we could not include Meals for One as a chapter, which is about what food means to you. Writing about how food, eating and its habits are a reflection of yourself and your identity. You know, food is an aspect of life that we need to survive. But obviously, as we keep saying, it's very personal, very emotional and has a lot of weight connected to it. It can influence how we understand ourselves and how we understand the world around us. A story that we've included in this chapter that, that addresses these themes is Prison Cake by Candy at Garuna. In this story, Azuma's brother Obi has recently been incarcerated and Uzo is struggling to cope with the solitude and worry. Candy's used the lens of what he eats and how he interacts with food to convey his emotional state at that time and bring forward some of the complicated emotions that he's sort of suppressing but they manifest themselves in his interactions with food as well as the people around him, all centering around what he eats, what he doesn't eat, how he cooks and what he doesn't cook. This is also the only story that we've included that is from a male perspective. I think the reason we wanted to include a male perspective or this particular male perspective was because Uzo has a really tricky relationship with food and it's his body image, his view of himself and how under a time of stress and pressure and isolation, his brother in prison at the time, like how that's exacerbated. And perhaps that is something that we often associate with women in women but it, I think it's important for us to see that happening through a male perspective as well. Yeah I think Candy balances it so brilliantly and here's a clip of her reading from Prison Cake. People generally know the deal when they're past this point of the journey. Still Uzuma shifts the cake tin housing a sloppily iced carrot cake onto the seat beside him and covers it with his jacket. He isn't trying to get any more looks on the bus to Her Majesty's prison Thameside. At least, no more than usual. Obi talked about the food on their last call. He had never had the best digestive system, one of the few things Uzuma doesn't miss about him. He was laughing, half mirth, half disbelief, as he spoke about the wet pizza, the soggy chips, the salty Friday night curries, the small sachets of cereal that left him hungry, stomach growling by mid-morning. Uzo could hear it in his voice, despite Obi's best efforts. When they spoke on the buzzy phone line, they both tried to keep their tones light, never far off a joke or a funny story. But sometimes on their weekly calls, it felt like they were kids again, like he was hopping over broken pavements, convinced that if he stepped down too hard on a crack, they would both fall into darkness. Uzo wasn't sure how to say to his younger brother that he didn't have to be ashamed of needing more. Still, it's Obi's birthday and Uzo spent the best part of last night making a carrot cake, Obi's favourite. For Uzo, cooking is a means to an end, and his baking skills are near non-existent. The sponges feel a bit soft, and the batter, stuffed with carrot and ginger shavings, walnuts and rum, was a bit spicy, but it doesn't look too bad, and the icing is tangy and sweet. He hopes Obi loves it. So from Meals for One to a chapter all about eating together with other people and making enough for two people or more. Split the Bill is our third fourth split the bill is our fourth section of what she's having and it's all about food as a shared experience we mentioned in our synopsis for this book how whole stories are made across a dinner table um, and this is something we're thinking about a lot at the moment not being able to share those experiences with people across the table as we once would but yeah thinking lots about eating and drinking with other people and the place that food holds in those situations and also um, how food can inform a relationship that you have with someone else or be part of that relationship the piece we're going to 
hear an extract from is Feast or Foe by Essie Bailey King. This is a really clever short story that feels like it might be set in a Bon Appetit-esque office or some kind of food magazine. As something we talked about actually right at the start of this episode, food writing can feel inaccessible. And I love having this piece in the collection because I think it really cleverly explores that. There's two characters and one is this kind of influencer who has Polaroids of like her favourite meals that she shares on Instagram. It's just a really clever exploration of how food can mean something very different to different people. I think the character you're describing is very like Alison Romany. And I remember when we were reading this, I was like, oh, I feel like I follow this person on Instagram already. Um, And I feel like I know exactly who Etty is describing here. It was really nice to have a piece set in that kind of world, one that we're not a part of. And also the story is just really fun. And it was really not frivolous, but enjoyable. Like it's a weighty subject, but delivered with a lot of humour. I feel like if it was a book, it would have the quote, deliciously dark on the front. That's how I how I would describe it as a novel. I think you're going to really enjoy this clip that we have of Etty reading from Feast or Foe. The third course in the tasting menu is liver with tart green apple. The acid brightness of the apple lights up the dark depth of liver. Yin and yang. Like me and Holly... Holly is pale, lean, long, so clumsy it's graceful. Maeve is soft, dark, brown, short, deliberate, slow, heavy molasses to Holly's ditzy icing sugar. Holly, golden girl. A curtain of swishing hair, the colour of rust, a dusting of freckles on her perfectly crooked nose, teeth bright white and perfectly straight, limbs so slim you could snap them. She Instagrams sourdough bloomers like they're accidents. She tears her herbs because she doesn't even own kitchen scissors. I know, I know. Maeve has read in countless cookbooks, meanwhile, that tearing herbs is the best way to avoid bruising their delicate leaves. So she tears her herbs like a soldier following orders, but Holly tears them with abandon. Maeve has been watching Holly's sourdough. It is suspiciously accomplished. She wants to ask what level of hydration Holly is following and when does she add the salt? Maeve wants to ask her what temperature her kitchen is. Her artsy, tiny, can't even lift my arms, there's only room for making margaritas kitchen. Maeve knows every single angle of that kitchen. It's where Holly and her friends, her beautiful friends, Instagram their late night karaoke sessions. But she can't see what temperature it is. Not from Instagram. We close our collection with the final section, which is taste buds. And it's all about discovering new flavours. We wanted to sort of hone in on the sensual and explorative nature of food. You know, when you just type in menus or you can sense your taste changing over time. And the thing we mentioned at the top of the episode of defining yourself by what food you like, what you food you dislike. For example, since I've been a child, I've always disliked bananas and butter. And that has stayed with me throughout my life as a very defining feature of being Friday. So we really wanted to tap into that side to think about the habits and the growth that comes from food and what it represents. I've written here, as a note to myself, you also hated olives. I did used to hate olives. Now I love them. Like, you know, that sort of thing. It's food as... Um, food is representing a, pas- a passage of time also as like a changing of your character a piece that does this really well is Creature of Habits by Terry Jane Dow this piece is an essay about the habits she's picked up from her father as well as a really 
nuanced discussion of being a fussy eater as a child and carrying it over into early adulthood and what the identity means to Terry Jane. Talks about how she's attempted to shake it, but also the impact that being a fussy eater had on her family and her sort of retrospectively acknowledging as she started to change her behaviours, how much she realised it was linked to her father. It's a really nice piece in the way of describing that relationship between her dad and her, but also thinking about that defining of yourself as a fussy eater or as someone who hates bananas and butter, like how you wear that and how you might one day try and shift it. It's a really nuanced discussion of that. Yeah, and I really am glad to have something on like fussy eating in this collection because I think it is something that can be easily dismissed or oversimplified. Yeah, definitely. That whole point of it being something you assign to like a difficult child, like, oh, they're a picky eater, they're a fussy eater. I think that's why we really connected with this essay because it, you know, addresses all of that. So here's Terry Jane reading from Creatures of Habit. My dad and I eat our dinner in the same order, methodically working our way clockwise around our plates, regardless of what's on them. As I eat, I wonder if this is a habit that anyone else has ever noticed. Did I pick it up in order to be more like him, something that started as sympathy? Is it symptomatic of sitting across the table from him, in the seat that's always mine, for 30 years? I wonder if we're truly the sum of the people that we spend the most time with, an amalgamation, cut and pasted into a single self. Growing up, the four of us, my parents, me and my younger sister, would split into two sets of two. Travelling for holidays, Mum and I sat behind Dad and Sarah, passing red pots of Pringles through the gap in the aeroplane seats. I couldn't be trusted to sit with either my sister or my dad for four hours. There would be too much giggling or bickering, depending on the mood. Conversely, on walks along the seafront after weekend drives to Southend-on-Sea, Dad and I would stride miles ahead of Mum and Sarah, eating chips out of newspaper wrapping. Having finished eating his own, Dad would steal my chips and then complain about the lack of vinegar. Since he died, I have re-evaluated the difficult parts of our relationship. I've dug through my memory and investigated every argument, every time my teenage feet stomped up the stairs. I've replayed every single time a person in my life quietly uttered, you clash because you're so alike. And there are many. Instead of a sigh, I hear it now as a mantra. I cling to what used to infuriate me, our matched stubborn refusal to lose a fight. I've thought about how our shared flaws are also our strengths, about how every time I've been asked in job interviews or uni introductions who my role model is, I've answered my dad without hesitation. In a million years, I would never have admitted that to him. Perhaps I should have. Usually in our podcast, this is the time for Dearest Damsels, where we hand over to other women who are doing brilliant things that you need to know about. But this time, we wanted to give this section over to some of the women who contributed to what she's having. In this section, they're going to answer some questions about food, recipes, and why they were compelled to share their stories or art or time with this collection about women and food. Why did you want to write about food? Why did I want to write about food? Well, (laughs) I love food. And it's nice to write from a place of love sometimes, isn't it? Like for me, I regard food to be one of the most integral squares in the patchwork quilt of our lives and our full, full, full selves, actually. Like in my mind, there's a square for like ice gems at the teddy bear's picnic in year three there's a square for my grand's fried fish there's there's a square for like christmas presents gone wrong like i decided to make everyone fudge one year and obviously like it just like wouldn't set you know like memories of beautiful meals i've had and 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 all of that stuff like it's just there and i think 
I think food is always there. And if it's not there, there's something about that absence to be said as well. I think you can tell a lot about a person from their approach to food as well. And oh my God, I love, I love talking about food. And like, absolutely, bottom line, and this is what I wanted to write about, you know, in my, in my piece for the collection. I think food is a love language and a learning curve and a way you show up for yourself or for others or for each other. And that's something I really wanted to explore. I think also there's something to be said for becoming food's ally, you know? Like, my relationship with food and eating has been complex and at times it hasn't been totally um, uh, productive, let's say. So writing this piece in this way was like, I guess like writing an overdue love letter maybe, maybe even an apology. And also just a simple homage to that, that thing that, on its best days, not only sustains us, but holds and, and comforts and, and bonds us. I don't really know why I wanted to write about food. Um, in fact, if I'm honest, I don't think I really did to begin with. I never felt like I had that much to say about food because I don't enjoy cooking. I kind of thought, okay, well, if you don't cook, that's the only way to talk about food. And that's just never been something I've particularly enjoyed. Um, much more of a fan of the eating part. Um, I guess the more I thought about it, I thought, okay, well, you don't like cooking, but what other food things are there? That you could write about and I just kind of knew if I'm going to write about food I'm going to write about my grandma I think because most of my fondest food memories involve her and most of my memories of her involve food and from that this essay about the humble apricot um, which I didn't really realize how significant it had become in my life it all just sort of flowed out after that I wanted to write about food because I'm obsessed with it. Not in an elegant, sophisticated, uh, can you detect the notes of oak in the bouquet of this wine kind of way. I have no palate. I'm just totally greedy. I dream almost every night about food. Last night I was deep frying croquettes in my sleep. Uh, the other night I woke up and bit into my earplug thinking it was a chocolate raisin. Other evenings I dream I'm taking beautiful dishes out of my freezer and then I wake up excited and then devastated that they're not really there. So I'm a glutton, basically. Hello, it's Saida here. I wrote the article Eating by Hand. I guess you could say I wrote about it because having now lived in Dubai for two years and being a teacher of English, I was able to combine two things that I truly love. The first thing that I love is obviously literature, writing and reading about it and always encouraging my children to take risks and my students to have a go at being creative and it's quite hard to do that if you haven't had a go at it yourself. So I really got into writing because I wanted to inspire the children. Why I wrote about food is a different question and I guess it's more to do with the fact that being out here has made me feel a little unmoored and away from my family and my friends and Dubai is so international and so brilliant in that way but sometimes you feel a little lonely because you're away from your own community specifically um, a Bangladeshi London sort of community that I grew up in is quite hard to find out here and one of the things that has helped anchor me 
has to be food without a doubt so calling up my mum and asking for recipes going online and looking for Bangladeshi recipes doing some research on that so really that's one of the main reasons why I've gotten into food writing and I've enjoyed it so much why do I write about food I think as a fat woman writing about food feels radical and it feels really taboo Um, I remember when I was in my 20s, I really was frightened of associating myself too much with food. I felt like revealing how much food interests me um, was revealing something inherently wrong about myself, like a flaw. Um, As I've grown older, I'm really glad that I've learned to reject that. That's an inherently fat phobic position. And that was internalized fat phobia, um, you know, restricting me, restricting me artistically, but also restricting my access to pleasure. Um, so yeah, I I've, I've feel like writing about food is radical, um, but it's also very ordinary. Um, it's evocative, it's sensory, it's also painful sometimes. Um, food connects us to our past, it connects us to our loved ones that we've lost. Um, it connects us to our present as well, like the mindful act of chopping and stirring. Um, is really valuable. Um, And I love it. I love the ritual. I love the flavor. I love the end result. I love the stories. I love the new experiences. Um, I love the way that we can explore other things by talking about food as well. Um, I love it. What's your favorite meal to make? My favorite recipe at the moment is um, Smitten Kitchen's red wine chocolate cake, which is a perfect cake to make in winter because it still tastes of red wine and it's wintry and warming Um, and it takes 10 minutes to make and half an hour to put in the oven so it's very good for a Monday lunchtime when there's still kind of half a glass of red wine left in the bottle from the weekend and Tuesday is coming. Uh, my favorite recipe at the moment um in lockdown i think truthfully my favorite recipe is ordering meal kits from restaurants i started ordering these in veganuary um because we had one sad experience with a vegan dominoes and i was like i'm not doing this again i feel like these like big brands are just kind of cashing in on veganuary without doing the work to make the food good um so we, yeah we started ordering vegan restaurant meal kits and they're so good like they're so much fresher um and so much more delicious than a takeaway um they're really fun to cook with a little cocktail and then you end up with this amazing meal at the end of it um so so far we've done vegan steamed buns vegan ramen vegan poutine and then regular pizza from pizza pilgrims and they're just amazing i can't recommend them enough my favorite recipe has to be the armenian cheesy rice from the persepolis cookbook which is also available online it's essentially rice cooked in ghee so it's really lovely and soft halloumi spinach dill lots of pepper and you finish it off with some nuts and some zumac and it's just really hearty and warming and just the perfect thing on a cold night and it's not too difficult to make i've shared it with so many friends and we're all just in love with it um definitely recommend trying to find the recipe so my favorite recipe is a steamed chocolate pudding it's actually my friend's recipe although i'm in the process of trying to adapt it so that it's vegan at the moment um which is going well um but it's essentially this really big rich dense sponge and honestly you pack as much chocolate as you can possibly get into this thing 
um, and you steam it for a few hours and when it's ready you create this like volcano of a sauce you know it's condensed milk and sugar and golden syrup and chocolate and butter and you get it bubbling away until it's all glossy and thick and then you pour it over and it really is an absolute showstopper um amazing for autumn and winter but i have been known to pull it out all year round as well what's your favorite memory of food my earliest memory to do with food possibly is sitting on my grandpa's lap and he had this kind of brown velvet armchair with an antimacassar behind his head and I was very small and he was very old and we would be nestled into this armchair together and my grandma would bring us a bowl each with mashed up banana covered in milk uh, with demerara sugar sprinkled over the top which made it crunchy and we would each eat ours with a teaspoon and I would be cuddled in with him and there would be all this excitement and commotion in the room with my older sister and my older cousins all dancing around in tutus and my aunt and uncle and my mum and dad and my grandma all busy and doing things and my grandpa was born in 1909 so he was he was very old when I was small he he was probably too old to join in that much and I was still too young to join in that much but we would eat this uh, treat together from my grandma that no one else got only we got given it and it was just so kind of cozy and safe and we would watch everyone enjoying themselves and have a cuddle and it's just a really happy memory now I'm older I realize probably the reason no one else got given quite the same treat that we did was that we were the two without proper teeth hello Abby and Bridie and all my fellow dear damsels my favorite food memory is one I share with my children when they were preschoolers, Jessica Seinfeld's cookbook, Deceptively Delicious, was a bestseller. My kids were notoriously fussy eaters, so I bought a copy and soon was slipping pureed carrots into their peanut butter and jelly muffins, cauliflower mash into their mozzarella sticks. I liquefied sweet potatoes and blended them into their pancake batter, pulverized an avocado, and slid it into rich chocolate pudding. The kids raved about these recipes, said I was a great cook. I gobbled up their compliments as fast as they ate up my secretly healthy treats. But finally, I went too far. Jessica's recipe for chocolate chip cookies called for a 15-ounce can of chickpeas. In a rush on this fateful day, I didn't smash them as well as I should have. Their color matched the batter. I thought it would be fine. I mean, I'd gotten away with so much already. When I put them in the oven, the house filled with the aroma of melting chocolate and vanilla, making me confident I'd baked yet another sneaky hit. My daughter noticed the chickpea fragments in her afternoon snack first and alerted my son, who was already on his third cookie. Before I knew it, they'd called their father at work shouting, Mommy put chickpeas in the cookies! Chickpeas in the cookies! Soon they were telling everyone they knew about my betrayal. Their grandparents, friends, teachers, any ground I'd gained over the months I'd been getting them to eat their veggies was swiftly lost. Rightfully, they no longer trusted me, going back to chicken nuggets and Kraft mac and cheese, and I learned that even good-hearted deception breaks trust. So why is this a story where I come off badly one of my favorites? Although they're now teenagers, my kids still tell their friends this tale, 
And when I'm around to hear it, underneath the remembered outrage at all the pumpkin beets and squash they unwittingly consumed, there's an undercurrent of amazement at the lengths I went, blender working overtime, and my misguided attempt to nourish them. And in their astonishment, I'd like to think what I hear is their deep knowledge of how very much they are loved. Food memories. So I used to have a big hang up about doing stuff on my own, like about lots of things. But in particular, eating especially was something that I tended to try and avoid doing. And like there's layers and layers and layers of reasons as to why. But in particular, I've never been a thin woman. And I think there can be something that can feel quite exposing about eating alone not exposing, but like vulnerable about eating alone in public. So yeah, about seven years ago, I just decided, no, I want to change that. So I went to the cinema by myself for the first time ever. And also like before I went to the cinema, I went to a deli and I got one of those, you know, those little foil boxes and you like put the cardboard thing on top and then you press it all down. I got one of those full of falafel and this like roasted courgette thing. This is like what comfort food is to me. Love that. So got that, rocked up to the cinema with my falafels and I watched the film alone and it was actually um, a really sad film. So I was like probably like sobbing, eating, like on my own, like just like living my life. And I remember feeling really, really powerful and, and actually just really comfortable. And I remember like both before and after the film feeling like I was being looked at funny and I probably wasn't like because also it was during the day shout out freelance life but even if I was being looked at funny I just remember that I, I didn't care and I remember feeling like don't look at me I'm having a turning point <laughs> and it was a turning point and from then on I go to the cinema alone and I take myself to lunch all the time and I get a lot of joy from that food memory has to be of the toast that was brought to me during labour. So I went into labour when I'd had like one bite of my meal the night before. And so like 16, 17 hours later, I was starving. And um, so the midwives kindly brought in, I think it was like eight slices of toast and half of it was white and half of it was brown. So I had the choice and I was like, yeah, that's really kind. I'll probably have one, maybe two slices just to keep me going. And my husband can have the rest, so that's great. And I think within five, ten minutes, I demolished the lot. So my poor husband was left with nothing. But um, yeah, I think that just makes me smile to look back on it. One of my favourite, one of my favourite food memories has to be, and I say this to everyone, and you can probably hear the smile in my voice as I say it because it's such a fond memory. Um, Ramadan, when I was growing up, used to take place during the winter months. And every year it goes back 10 days or so, which means why Ramadan is now in the summer months. But when I was growing up, uh, it was usually around December, January sort of time. And it was wonderful. That's how I remember it. Obviously, it moved on. And you'd, be, you'd wake up in the morning and because you're fasting, you'd brush your teeth and you go to school. And I'd skip lunch spend some time with all my other friends and then on the way home I'd go past this fish and chip shop and my tummy would be gurgling away and I'd be just thinking of oh just a few more minutes until I get home and then as soon as I walked in through the door mum would be frying samosas 
and it would be four o'clock just when the sun was about to set. It's perfect timing and you'd think, that's a great day of fasting I've just done and I've really earned it. And you can hear the crackling of Amma's samosas and you can hear the radio, so it'd be sunrise radio playing prayers and nasheeds to promote the day's fasting and getting ready for the table and it's such a rare moment in my family growing up to sit around the table we lived in a pokey little flat and ramadan would have been the only time we actually made an effort to all sit together because we had to we would all break our fast at the same time and there are some staple dishes obviously samosas had to be at the table with a little bit of with a dollop of chili sauce the joy of coming home I don't think can be replaced by any other food memory in my opinion when you're starving and you really felt like you've earned that juicy samosa nothing can quite replace that thanks to all our writers for sharing their thoughts about food and for contributing to this collection Anza Khan, Evie Summerfield, Hannah Lawrence, Paula Hilton, Sayida Salma, Maria Alona Moore, Amy Feldman, Kate Young, Candy Ekwuwuna, Grace Safford, Etty Bailey King, Tapku Barbaros, Alice Slater, Terry Jane Dow, Lucy Porter, and Sosha Collister. Thanks also to Libby Erland for our cover photography, Molly Alessandra Cooper for the illustrations, Kitty Stockton for her editorial help, and the only man getting a mention today, Marcus Chamberlain, who designed the cover and the text. That brings us to the part podcast where we tell you what you need to know about Dear Damsels, your own community and collective. Essentially, this is where we read out the memos on our desk to you or tell you the main dates in the calendar that you need to look forward to. And as we mentioned, it's all about what she's having, which is publishing on the 20th of February. We are incredibly excited about this book, in case you couldn't tell from a whole podcast episode dedicated to it. In more Dear Damsels book news, we wanted to mention that we've announced our next publishing opportunity. After publishing two paperback anthologies of fiction, non-fiction and poetry, Dear Damsels is looking to publish its first collection of work by a single author. So if you're sitting on a collection of short stories that are looking for a home, or if you write poetry that starts a conversation and you want to take that conversation further, or maybe you have a notebook full of pieces of prose that you think would work together as a manuscript, this might be just the opportunity for you. We'll be considering fiction, non-fiction and poetry with the plan to publish the collection towards the end of 2021 or early 2022. And importantly, you don't need to have a finished manuscript in order to submit. Your collection of work might explore a specific theme or multiple themes. We're really interested in hearing what's important to you. We love working closely with women writers to develop their work and would encourage anybody who's unsure if their work in progress or, or a current manuscript they're working on is the right fit to send it in for consideration anyway. You can find out more at the link in our show notes or at our website, deardamsels.com. Thank you for listening to her own words. What we've spoken about today is just a small snippet of what she's having. And you can pre-order a copy on the website, deardamsels.com, to read all the wonderful stories that we haven't had time to discuss in this episode. You can also find out more about the collection on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, at deardamsels. In the next podcast, we'll be discussing our first theme of 2021, which is play. It's recently launched on the website and you can find a link in the show notes to read the pieces. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to share it far and wide and perhaps subscribe, review and rate it. But that's it for now. Thanks for listening. Bye, Fry. Bye, Abs.